Life is full of awesome what ifs and some not so much, like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out of pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. The Women's Podcast, brought to you by Rabo Direct, the straight talking savings bank. Welcome to this live recording of the Women's Podcast, coming to you from the boardroom on the seventh floor of the Irish Times on this astoundingly sunny evening. As always, a quick reminder that you can subscribe to this award-winning podcast on iTunes, Stitcher and SoundCloud. And of course, you can always find us on irishtimes.com. If you have any thoughts on the podcast, do email us on thewomenspodcast at irishtimes.com or find us on Twitter and Facebook at IT Women's Podcast. Ten years ago, the Irish Times moved from Fleet Street to this very building you're in now. You could throw a stone and hit it from here. And I remember that old building because I'm old enough to remember a lot of things. But it was a fairly grim, fairly grimy warren of offices with a very ratchety lift in which lots of fairly illicit things took place, as far (laughs) as I know. They were the days, the early days of sexual liberation. I think the Irish Times staff took a lot of advantage of it. Olivia O'Leary was around then. Thank you, Olivia. Um, But it was a wonderful place to work and felt very friendly. And my own daughters used to come in and out. And there was a security man who wasn't really a security man. It was in the days when really everybody tipped in and out. Maeve Binchy trundled in. And we had all kinds of fantastic characters that just came up the stairs to the newsroom and chatted to whoever happened to be there. And we were actually very sad to be leaving it. But then we arrive in this tower of glass from which we can see the Dublin mountains from where I'm standing now. And it is actually a fabulous building. It took us a while to get used to it, but I'm very glad to be here. The Fleet Street premises is now a very squish restaurant called Medley. And to mark the 10 years, we decided to invite a medley of women journalists from across print, online and broadcasting to tell us about the most memorable or satisfying stories of their career. So tonight, the Women's Podcast is delighted to present Story Times. <laughs> we have some very experienced journalists here, including Anne Harris, bit of a legend, actually. You're very welcome, Anne. Some women who are just starting out, like Neve Towie, who works with the Irish Times in digital journalism, and Sarah Pollock, who writes our New to the Parish series. We also have women who used to work here, but now, sadly, earn a crust elsewhere. Hello to you, Olivia O'Leary. The only woman I'd actually go out and canvas for if she went for election in any shape or form. And we're delighted to welcome some of our subscribers to irishtimes.com into the building for this special event. Also our sponsors, Rabbi Direct, who give a lot of support and have been with us on the Women's Podcast since we began last September. We really appreciate you being part of this. We are going to begin with some music. Zrazi are a Dublin band. Maria Walsh and Carol Nelson formed in 1992 and went on to win many awards for Best Album and Best Jazz Song in the USA in the early 2000s. They've never shied away from engaging with politics and they released a radically rewritten version of the National Anthem, retrieving the forgotten women of 1916. And they are currently completing a video supporting the Repeal the Eighth campaign. They recently released their sixth album after a 10-year gap and are, enjoying being rac- and are enjoying being back on the road more than ever. Their first song is called Maroc from their Dream On album of 2005. 
could have done uh, all sorts of songs from our vast back catalogue, but we decided, I was prompted actually by reading an article in yesterday's Irish Times, an article about the girl up sexism. I just recently finished um, a history and Irish studies degree as a mature student in UCD, and uh, I'd love a full page in the Irish Times to talk about this. <laughs> but I could not get over the sexism in the syllabus in both um, subjects, and I was really appalled. So, uh, I mean, I've been very, I was born a feminist, really, but I just, it was shocking to witness that in, in 2012, 13, 14, and sit amongst, uh, in seminars with 18, 19-year-old girls who were extremely shy, couldn't talk about anything, and yet the boys were speaking up and jumping around the place. And so, uh, but the content of the syllabus was sexist, so... Uh, it, it prompted me to rewrite that national anthem, but also it's prompted this particular song about trying to find oneself. And for girls today, my, my heart goes out to them with um, the onslaught. So this is called Morocco. for childhood to end I waited for school to be over I waited for the right job I waited for the perfect lover I waited for permission I waited for a sign I waited for years and years of my time. I waited for someone. I was waiting for me. I waited for the sky to clear. I waited for the yellow brick road. I waited for the shooting stars I waited for God who never showed I waited for revolution I waited for peace I waited for wonders that would never cease I waited for someone waiting for me Thank you. 
I waited for the light to fade away I waited for the baby to grow I waited for the drugs to take effect I waited for the emptiness to go I waited for money I waited for success I waited for it all I wouldn't wait for less I waited for someone I was waiting for me I was waiting for me I was waiting for me Razy there with their song Maroc. <laughs> from their Dream On album. Now, we're going to start our story, Times, um, and I have been given permission not to tell a story. But our producer has said that I can say anything I want, providing it's vaguely relevant. Um, and I suppose, really, the beauty of this is I don't have to pick a particular story because I think that's the hardest part of what the journalists here tonight have to do. It's very hard to pick a story after many decades in journalism. And all I can do is be skittish about it, to be honest with you, because I became known for a while as a tragedy correspondent of the Irish Times, which is a kind of a joke, but in fact wasn't really. I mean, if there was a, a, a multiple pileup or a murder-suicide or a mass killing anywhere, I was your woman. Um, and in many ways, it meant that I got to go to do stories, I suppose, which were the, the, the nightly news. In other ways, it was, it was actually very difficult because it was very hard not to become immersed in a story if you're actually writing what they call colour. Uh, you're not just straightforward reporting, you're trying to capture the atmosphere, the tension, the grief, all of that. Um, so I am inclined to be very skittish in the way I approach things. And when I was asked to do this, the first thing I could think of was, because my daughter Sarah is here in the room, the time when uh, she was allowed to travel with me to a recording of The X Factor at the height of its pomp, uh, because I was to interview Louis Walsh. And I cannot describe the excitement to you of poking around in Louis Walsh's bedroom in the Mayfair Hotel <laughs> and watching Mariah Carey being an absolute diva up on stage. Apart from that, we all have had very awkward moments in journalism where you've had to question yourself and how you research something. And I suppose for me, one of my great questioning points was the general election of 2007, which I felt I'd been prepared for all my life. When I wrote a week before voting day that uh, Fianna Fáil headquarters were actually a, a scene from Meltdown Manor. And a week later, Fianna Fáil skated back into government and I looked like a complete idiot. Um, <laughs> and I will go to my grave saying that's the way it was the week before and the polls said so. <laughs> but the postscript to that is that one of the very clever lads in Fianna Fáil HQ put a huge bet on when he read my piece that Fianna Fáil would win by so many seats and they won a massive amount of money and they delivered a crate of wine to my door a few weeks later. 
But the one story that I do think of seriously that has happened in the last few years and that I remember very clearly because of the weeks leading up to it, they were actually agonizing, was four very brave women who had longed for pregnancies and which were discovered to be fatal, fetal abnormalities. They were the first women to come out and actually talk about that awful trip to Liverpool to terminate a pregnancy with their names and photographs attached. And to say that they agonised over that for months beforehand is to understate it terribly. For me, it was a lesson in how this country treats its women. Uh, For those women, they went on to form an association and are now out and proud and talking to every TD who will lend an ear to their cause. And I think that that is one thing about journalism that where you can every so often make a difference. But in the end, it's the people who agree to talk to you that really make the difference. And that's what we're all about is trying to win the trust of people, trying to get them to talk to you in a way that is straightforward and honest. Because in the end, if we're not honest journalists, if we're not trustworthy, then where are we all going? This is so important to the message of an older journalist here today, which is that there are cowboys and wide boys out there who are bringing journalism to the gutter And it's up to us to maintain that honest, straightforward approach and to believe in what we're doing. So without further ado, I'm going to hand you over to some proper journalists. Now, they'll be coming at you thick and fast with their stories from now on. So are you sitting comfortably? Yes. Well, then we'll begin. Here to tell our first story times of the evening, please welcome Irish Times restaurant critic and former crime correspondent of the Irish Times, Catherine Cleary. (laughs) Thank you, Cathy. I'm thrilled to be here amongst such a wonderful room of women. And thank you, Roisin. And I'm just going to start. Anne Ryan was bringing her children home from a swim 20 years ago when a car dropped out of the sky and killed her at the Glenview Roundabout in Talla. In 1997, the driver of the speeding car, a young architect called Philip Sheedy, was jailed for four years. Just over a year later, he was released. Sheedy's early release became a judicial scandal. Two judges resigned. I was a security correspondent of the Sunday Tribune, and my editor, Matt Cooper, felt the story went beyond the walls of the forecourts. I found out that it did. After a lot of digging, the breakthrough phone call made the hairs on the back of my neck stand up. I hung up, walked into Matt's office, closed the door and told him the news. A judicial scandal had just become a political one because we now knew that Taoiseach Bertie Ahern had asked about regular day release for Sheedy. The architect had been working for the publican, Joe Burke. Joe Burke was a close associate of Bertie Ahern. I put the story to the government press officer. The Taoiseach rang me directly. It's Bertie here, he said, all Asher charm. He set about trying to explain that if I really understood how politics worked, I would understand that there was no story. His silken tone had turned to barbed wire by the end of the phone call. For months afterwards, my password for the Sunday Tribune computer system was It's Bertie here, all one word. (laughs) For a few hours, it looked as if the government might fall. In the end, the PDs didn't pull the plug. Then the waters of consensus closed over the story. The political experts agreed with Bertie. This was just politics, Bertie style. Vaguely embarrassing, but nothing to see here. 
It would be several years and a triumphant election for Fianna Fáil under Bertie before the dig-out payments emerged. The Sunday Tribune is gone now, along with the kind of news budgets that routinely allowed journalists to keep prodding a story until it yielded more of its secrets. There were other, less proud moments. Do you not think I know that? A woman said to me quietly through gritted teeth as I stood on her doorstep. I had presented her with my polished nugget of research, like the golden key to an interview with her as the mother of a murdered young woman. It would have been your daughter's birthday this week, I had said. Do you not think I know that, she asked, every word dripping hot into the pit of my stomach. I turned away, she closed her door. Women journalists are often sent to doorstep the families of victims. We play our roles as experts sent to do a job. The scoop of my career taught me how important it was to keep asking uncomfortable questions of powerful people. The moment of which I am least proud taught me when to apologise and leave. Because sometimes the stories we are looking for are not ours to tell. Hey everybody, it's uh, really nice to see you. Um, my name is Lois Capilla and I'm the founder and, and editor at Dublin Inquirer. Um, and I'd like to tell you a story today about one of the, um, I guess, the, the stories that was formative for me as a young reporter. I'd been working at an Indian newspaper in Calcutta for several months when a boatload of wheat was seized by the port police. It was supposed to have left the mill and been sent to ship shops around the state for the poorest of the poor to buy cheap. It was supposed to be part of the West Bengal government's food programme, meant for the hungry. Instead, a commodities exporter had got it somehow and sold it on, and it was headed out of the country. I don't know why this story in particular gnawed at me, and why following it became an obsession for the next year and a half until I left. But it did. And I learnt a few things. I learnt to keep knocking on doors because you never know who's going to talk to you. I learnt that there's nothing better than getting one over on someone who's been doing something seriously wrong and trying to hide it. And I also learned how to pick myself up after making an idiot out of myself, rather than retreat and hide from the world. Which was good, because I made an idiot out of myself rather a lot. Like the time I accidentally created a police raid on the export company's office by speaking a bit too assertively outside the high court about where the police might be able to find a company director they were trying to arrest. Later that day, I was walking into the company's office building and a crowd of giant policemen ran through the door. It was kind of like an Indian Benny Hill clip. Some went for the stairs and two guys flanked me in the lift. It seemed, they said, I overheard, they'd gotten a tip at the high court. <laughs> I glanced to either side and my head was about level with their bellies. And part of me was impressed with the speed of the reaction and part of me was absolutely mortified. The guy wasn't in his office. Then there was the time it had taken me a bit too long to work out that I was not in the middle of a protest about rickshaw drivers' rights, but in the middle of a riot against journalists. <laughs> But that ended with me being chased down the street and jumping into a police car with a very inhospitable policeman. Sheepish, I was rescued hours later from the police station by my paper's police reporter. It wasn't all funny, though. While following the story of the ship full of wheat, I was stonewalled and lied to and shouted at, leaving me despairing and furious and frustrated. I wrote several stories about it over the next year or so about how one of the directors of the commodities exporter, who had a warrant issued for his arrest, had been photographed with a top government official how a second director had been sat in his office easy enough to find. 
I followed freedom of information requests through the food department through appeal after appeal, which were decided by the same people who might have been involved. I found other ways to get the same information. I met in smoky coffee shops and back alleys with people who gave me envelopes of documents. I don't know whether any of it really made any difference at all or not, but I guess at least for a little while, some people thought they were being watched a bit more closely. My name is Kitty Holland, and I know a lot of people here might expect me to talk about the Savita Halapanavar case, but I'm not going to because that's too predictable. I'm going to talk about a woman I went and interviewed in 2002 when I was starting out, well, I'd been about four or five years in journalism, but she made a very big impression on me. It was at a time when um, the government was trying to say we didn't really have a problem with poverty anymore. And I got in touch with um, a nun I knew out in West Halla. And I said, could you put me in touch with a family who's making, having difficulty making ends meet? And when I went out to meet this woman, she had said initially, I don't want my name used. I don't want my photograph taken. I want this. I'll talk to you about it. But by the end of the interview, she said she wanted her name used and she wanted a photograph taken. And I suppose it was about being heard and um, about having a voice and being respected for her situation. So I'm going to just quote from a bit of the article. And I also just wanted to say, I think it's still relevant. Um, one of the things Cathy said about, you know, how this country treats women, uh, women still bear the brunt of poverty in this country. The vast majority of families going into homelessness are, um, sorry, I'm getting a bit emotional about it, are headed by single mothers. Um, I've just done a piece today about how one in four families going into homelessness are women fleeing domestic violence. So poverty is very much a feminist issue. And uh, this woman was called Anne Pepper, and she was in a wheelchair, and her childhood polio had flared up so badly six years ago that she's been left in a wheelchair. She lives in Killinarden in West Halla with her 13-year-old son. She looks after her youngest son, Dean, as best she can with €135.60 a week. She also gets €117.60 a month in child benefit. So she has an average monthly income of 660 The things I always buy, I always buy four loaves of bread. Dunn's own brand is the cheapest. It's 59 cents a loaf. I buy a pound of butter, sugar, tea. I always buy sausages, the cheapest. I scan for the cheapest before I look at the brands, though not with the cereals. I always buy good cereals for breakfast, and I try to change the variety. Otherwise, after a few weeks of one kind, halfway through, he'll get bored and want a different kind, and I can't afford to let half a box of cereal go to waste. She cooks maybe sausages and beans, nuggets and chips, potato and chicken burgers for her son's dinner. Rarely red meat, she says, and never fish, which has gone as dear as meat. So too her fruit and vegetables. If I get much vegetables or fruit, something else will have to be put back. Her other big outgoing is clothes for Dean, who despite her best efforts has on occasion come home from school upset because he's been slagged and bullied for not having the top gear. He's in second year and it's very difficult, she tells me. He gets depressed. It's got to the stage where he's mitched from school. At that age, they have to have the right runners, the right jacket, even the right cap. I brought him runners for the start of school for 90 euro and they didn't last four weeks. Asked how often she buys clothes for herself, she says, never, but my daughter is very good. She buys me clothes for birthdays and Christmas. She's not owned a coat since 1999. I wear a fleece over a fleece instead. I've looked at coats, but they're too expensive and I wouldn't spend that much on myself. Dean, she says, is very aware of how things are financially for his mother, though she tries to shield it from him. The most difficult moments are when he tells her about things his friends have, his friends are doing or have. 
I get 16.80 a week child dependent allowance for him to clothe and feed him, she says angrily. Some kids get that for pocket money. Dean gets no pocket money. If he has to go to the pitches with his friends, I'll root and see if I can give him the money. If my other son is in, I'll ask if he can lend me some. But you'd need 10 euros to go to the pitchers. I'd say he gets to go maybe once or twice a year. One day there last week, he came home very down. And I'd love to have said to him, come on, we'll go out for a cup of tea. But I didn't even have the price of a cup of tea. Asked about Christmas, which was coming up, she gets upset. Lifting her spectacles away from her eyes, she wipes them and says, I want to get Dean nice clothes. He'd love to have a bike. He has a bike picked out in the Argus catalogue. It's a mountain bike with suspension or something, navy and yellow for 170 euro. I know the page and the serial number because he looks at it every day. He had wanted a PlayStation, but at 270 euro for the console, she says it's out of the question. Asked if she will be able to afford the bike, she sighs. I don't think so. Anne says she would love Minister for Finance Charlie McCreevy to try struggling for just one week like she does every week, all year. Asked whether she thinks the government realise how tough it is for people like her, she says, I don't think they can believe it. I think they think it's not as bad as it is. She says she gets depressed thinking about the future. I cry in bed and I cry in the shower. I can't cry in front of the children. I want them to have a good life, to live in a just society. They're good boys. They deserve better. Hi, everybody. My name is Shona Murray. I'm Newstalk's tragedy correspondent. <laughs> I can understand what you mean by what you were talking about earlier, Cathy. So this story is um, no different to all the stories I cover. It's kind of, it's not the most enlightening and it's far removed from Ireland, which is why it sort of struck me so much. But anyway, on Christmas Eve 2014, 26-year-old fighter pilot and lieutenant in the Jordanian army, Muad al-Kasaspe, crashed into the city of Raqqa, Syria, the capital of the so-called Islamic State. Video footage of his inevitable capture by ISIS militants sent fear into the hearts of his family and the rest of the world. Just a couple of months earlier, the Islamic State had released a spate of beheading videos, including those of journalists James Foley and Stephen Sotloff. So a similar fate was likely to await Muad. Instead, the Jordanian government, along with Muad's uncle, a respected major general in the army, had opened up a line of negotiations with IS, and it appeared for several weeks that progress was being made on a prisoner swap that would see Muad free. The Jordanians were willing to exchange failed suicide bomber Sajida al-Rashawi, convicted of her involvement in Jordan's deadliest terrorist attack in 2005, when a string of hotels were targeted by the founder of ISIS, Abu Musa al-Zarqawi. She, she nearly killed 57 people. Her suicide belt had failed to explode and she fled the scene of the Radisson. Alas, just six weeks after his capture on February 3rd, ISIS released a video of Muad being burned alive in a cage. Two weeks later, I travelled to the Jordanian city of Karak in Jordan, where Muad had lived and where the Kasaspe family are highly regarded, his father a tribal chief. His brother Daudith, who's 30 at the time, agreed to an interview and we arranged to meet at the university where he lectures in engineering. I was most grateful that he'd give me this time while suffering so much grief over his younger brother. And when, when he, he greeted me at the entrance, I was immediately thrown off guard at how Jowdit was almost identical to Muad, the young man in the cage that the world had seen buried in flames. We went to his office to conduct the interview, and just before we started, he smiled and pointed to a Royal Jordanian Air Force coffee mug sitting on his desk. He explained that Muad had given it to him as a gift just days before his capture. 
And while we spoke, I was completely taken aback and how philosophical he was about Muad's death. He talked about how at least Muad was now in paradise. He said he couldn't watch the video because it was too, tra- too traumatic, but that neighbours and friends who had seen it assured him that during his execution, Muad had been very brave and he didn't cry. Quote. He talked about how ISIS was still sending the family death threats and that the CIA and Jordanian intelligence now knew that the execution video had been filmed long before its publication, meaning the so-called negotiations were never going to bear fruit. He explained that Muad, who was an exceptionally conscientious and kind person, had consulted an imam before he engaged his coalition strike duty because he wanted to make sure it was okay to kill fellow Muslims. The imam told him it was okay because these people weren't real Muslims, they were enemies of Islam. He then said the family were concentrating on supporting Muad's heartbroken young wife, Anwar, and that they'd encourage her to do a master's degree. His mother and father were still distraught, but they'd stay strong. After the interview, we talked for quite a while, and he asked me several questions about Ireland and whether Irish people knew or even cared about Muad and his experience. I explained Irish people were just as horrified by his, by his ordeal, and that was the reason I was there. He said he was incredibly grateful for that. And as we were getting ready to say goodbye, he lifted up the coffee mug from his desk and he said, I think Mawad would like you to have this. And I was completely shocked and absolutely refused. There was no way I could have this in my possession, something so meaningful between two brothers. But he insisted. And to this day, it remains in my possession. One of the most meaningful things I've ever come across. Hello, I'm Barbara Power. I'm executive editor of Weekend Magazine at the Indo, and in a former life, I was a reporter at the Evening Herald. Tea. Lots of cups of tea. It's a good job I was brought up by a Cork woman who introduced me to pots of Barry's tea on the hour, every hour. The ability to sit and loiter over a cup of tea with a notebook and pencil in hand was something I developed after I joined the staff of a national newspaper at the age of 22. At college, our shorthand teacher, Mairead Doyle, had emphasised the need to gain a speed of 210 words a minute in shorthand in order to record the Fine Gael politician Dr Gareth Fitzgerald in the Dáil. Mm. However, as crucial as accurate reporting skills are, Out in the field, I wised up to the many storytelling aspects of this job. And so began my journalistic career at what is known in the trade as doorstepping. Don't take your coat off, the news editor would boom as we poured into the office at 7am. Instead of daily markings at the four courts or the doll, some reporters would be dispatched out on overnight breaking stories. I often was that foot soldier. And during the course of those covering those breaking stories, I wrote about fatal house fires, road accidents, kidnaps and murders. The one that lives with me is the murder of Georgina Eager, who I met and interviewed just a few weeks before she died. And I left that house in Watkinstown because, to be honest, I was scared by her tutor who, on that fatal night, subsequently murdered her. They say one night's newspaper covers tomorrow night's chips. And while many newspaper stories are consigned to history, others continue to live with us. And there are many that refuse to leave this reporter's memory.
There were funny moments, like the family who discovered over breakfast that they'd won the lotto the night before and promptly decided that they'd bring their neighbours on holiday. All of them. Um, A call to the home of Michael Cruth the morning after he won gold in the 1992 Olympics revealed how his parents' perfectly manicured front garden in in Green Hills had been flattened by a stampede of jubilant fans. So after reading the story, a local garden centre came up and replanted it. And we got a second story. Uh, There were lots of good news stories on those doorsteps, but inevitably the majority of them were impossibly sad. There were the endless Saturday morning calls to houses from which smiling youngsters had gone out on a Friday night, never to return. On one tragic Saturday morning, I remember the the death toll reached eight children. Gracious parents with their heart broken recently by tragic news invited reporters into their front room. The kettle would go on. Someone would reach for the family photographs and going through the pages, tears dropping on the photographs, they would relive happier times, paying tribute to those offspring wanting to tell their story and their achievements in life because above all, they wanted to make sure their children were not forgotten or reduced to just a road accident statistic. It was impossible not to feel the pain of the families of Ireland's six missing women in the 1990s. And those relatives kept strong as we returned time and time again. They were always hoping for a breakthrough, and that's why they gave so many interviews. Deirdre Jacob in Kildare, Jojo Dullard in Kilkenny, Kira Breen in Dundalk, Fiona Pender in Tullamore, Fiona Sinnott in Wexford. I'll never forget the giant shoulders of New York cop John McCarrick, crumbling as he collapsed into tears as he anxiously searched for clues for his only daughter, Annie, who had gone missing in Dublin in 1993. But it's the case of missing schoolboy Philip Kearns that haunts me the most. October 23rd, 1986 will forever be etched on my memory. It's the date that the 13-year-old schoolboy from Rathfarnham disappeared on his way back to school after lunch. His dry school bag turned up a week later, but without his religious book. But this was a cruel development that failed to yield any answer for his anxious family. For years later, around the time of the anniversary, I'd call on Philip's mum, Alice Cairns, and she would always graciously invite me into the kitchen where we'd sip tea and talk. She has a deep faith, and now, 30 years later, She's never given up hope that one day Philip might be found. Over the years, I've had a front row seat on the shared grief of the families of Ireland's missing people and what they call their unique pain. Last year, many of the families I had interviewed over the years gathered together at Farm Lee for their third annual Missing Persons Day. It was a day of tears, the inevitable tea, and as a final symbolic gesture on the day, they released homing pigeons. Homing pigeons, and they dreamt that one day their missing loved ones would find their way home. I'm Anne Harris, and I'm a freelance journalist. I must confess to a certain frisson when I see myself described as a freelance journalist. Until last year, I had for 30 years been an editor. 
An editor's work is visionary and facilitating of other journalists. Commissioning, however, is often only the beginning, especially when the obstacles to publication are great. Such a story was Elaine Burns' Lowry tapes. A great many people did not want to see that story published. Of itself, the very de definition of a good news story. And it often seemed as if it would never see light of day. It is a story of which I, as editor, am very proud. But as editor, I can only claim guardianship rights. Before I was an editor, I was a freelance journalist. And I decided to trawl those years for scoops and cautionary tales. I had imagined that, like losing your virginity, the first publication would, while momentous, it would, on reflection, prove disappointing. <laughs> it's very achievement, the end in itself. I was surprised, therefore, to discover that my first published story was replete with issues that still resonate today. Foreign direct investment and the right to unionize, women and conflicting attitudes in the workplace. I was barely 20, with a small baby in another city not my own. It would be at least another year before Mary Kenny erupted into Dublin, and at least another two years before feminism knocked on the door of Ireland. Isolation was a reality. My mother arrived from Cork to take the baby for a few days. You need a break, she said. What I needed was something which gave me a sense of self-worth. An epic industrial dispute about the right to unionise had been rumbling desultorily for five years between EI, the Irish subsidiary of American giant General Electric, and the ITGWU at the bright new industrial dawn of Shannon Free Airport Development Company. That strike now threatened the whole project. 11% of our national exports, even Shannon Airport itself. But what interested me was that most of the strikers were women. I had no training as a journalist. All I had was a ferocious curiosity and a couple of days' freedom. And I had done my research, which pointed to a culture clash between the Irish constitutional right to freedom of association, which was unionisation, and an American management style, which was extraordinarily paternalistic. EI supervision extended to the women's accommodation and morals, provided that they didn't join a union. I got a train and a bus to Shannon. I talked to women both on the picket and passing the picket lines, shop stewards, union officials, the Shannon Free Airport Development Company, and EI management. Information I had a plenty, but the story, where was the story? Suddenly, before my eyes, a drama worthy of Arthur Miller unfolded. The princesses of paternalism, 130 non-union women, had a hissy fit. The bus which drove them the 10 minutes walk to work failed to show, so they threw a lightning strike. The great EI management, on whom all irony was lost, prostrated themselves, begging the women to go back to work, giving in to their every whim. The EI dispute was eventually resolved, but if you ask me, it was at that moment that it dawned on EI management that it might be better to deal with courageous women fighting for their rights than capricious women intent on exploiting what they saw was a weakness. Because I'm an old pro and was given high 500 words, my story ends there. But I think... <laughs> <Go on. laughs> 
Well, I think possibly arising out of this, people might like to know how it became my first published story. So I came home, wrote furiously for the whole of the following day. At seven o'clock, took a bus to Berkey, where the Irish press was based, asked to, to know where the editor's office was, and I was shown yeah. it, knocked on the door and went into this room. I found an outer room in which sat a secretary who was a sort of a Praetorian guard to keep people like me out and to make sure that nobody got near the editor. His name was John Horgan, and he was from Cork. And he wanted to know my business, and I told him, and he said, well, you know. And I said, this is all coming to a head. It's terribly important. Okay, I'll take it. And he took the sheets in to Tim Pat Coogan in the inner sanctum. He came out a few minutes later and said, he'll see you now. So I went in, saw Tim Pat Coogan. He questioned me on it. He couldn't find, I had, you know, one of the golden rules of journalism is Audi Altrum Partum, here the other side. I'd heard every side, was falling down with information, the article. And um, he said, okay, I'll publish it and just bring me in any other idea you have. And that was that. Hi, everyone. Um, my name is Gemma O'Doherty, and I'm an investigative journalist. Um, I worked for the Irish Independent for almost 20 years, um, but I've now moved into broadcast journalism, and I'm making a documentary about Mary Boyle, who is Ireland's longest and youngest missing person. When I was a child, horses were my first love. To me, they symbolised freedom beauty and nature at its most noble. I never imagined that they would drag me into a dark world of corruption, cover-up and murder. But that was what happened to me in August 2010 after a chance encounter with a man at the Dublin Horse Show. He was a master of foxhounds from the Midlands and I was a feature writer with a nosy disposition. My brief was benign a quick turnaround on the horse he set and how they were faring in the recession. But he had more pressing matters on his mind. I've been waiting for the right journalist and you might be her, he quipped as he asked for my card and suggested we meet soon again. It's about the murder of a priest in 1985. It was swept under the carpet, but I was on the sidelines for most of it and I can fill in a lot of the gaps. You'll have to come and meet me, though, so I can tell you the full story. A few weeks later, I did. My trip down the country that day was the beginning of a disturbing and eye-opening journey that would reveal the lowest capabilities of man in so-called high society. I followed leads on the case that took me to almost every county in Ireland. And everywhere I went, horses were never far away. Two years later, the huntsman's theory had been vindicated. My investigation into the murder of Father Niall Malloy led to its description in Leinster House as the biggest cover-up in the history of the state. The more I wrote about the case, the more I realised that this sordid conspiracy to shield a priest's killing 
was far from exceptional. Before long, my desk at the Irish Independent was piled high with the case files of other victims who had lost loved ones in violent circumstances and were alleging Gartha malpractice and corruption in their investigations. Most of them were broken people. Not just by their loss, but because they had been denied truth and justice by Angartha Siakona and this state. Their testimonies were real and compelling, but they could not get a hearing from Gartha headquarters or the mainstream media. The more I probed on their behalf, writing about their cases and taking them into the doll to meet politicians, I became a target of intimidation and harassment by those who wanted the silence to linger. A number of officers I trusted warned me to ease off and change my phone number. I was upsetting the powers that be. The timing was unfortunate. I had just been approached by a man who had some fascinating insights into the sort of people who were getting speeding tickets wiped. Journalists, sports people, politicians, lawyers. Within days, I was ordered out of my job at the newspaper I had worked for 17 years. Not long afterwards, my beloved horse, who brought me so much comfort and distraction during my own battle for justice, was taken too, displaying the same dignity in death as he always did in life. But a few months later, another distraction came when I was handed a picture of a captivating little girl with pigtails. This is the child whose case will vindicate your other cases. Will you take it on? My contact asked. A few weeks later, I stood alone in the field where Ireland's longest and youngest missing person, Mary Boyle, made her final journey. On that lonely moor which held such dark secrets, I thought about the last moments in her six-year-old life and the unimaginable fear she must have felt as death approached. Suddenly, the silence around me was shattered and I felt a presence come towards me. I turned around quickly, only to find a dapple grey pony walking through the morning mist. She nuzzled into me and her warm breath took the chill out of the winter air. And there was something in her black beguiling eye that told me the truth wasn't far away. Thank you. Now we have to take a short break, but when we come back, women including Olivia O'Leary, Sinead Ryan and Sarka Pollock tell the story of their most memorable working experiences. At Rabo Direct, we believe in keeping things clear and to the point without any unnecessary waffle. And in that spirit, we'll let you get back to your podcast. Rabo Direct. The straight-talking savings bank. Hello. 
I'm Roisin Ingle. I'm Daily Features Editor and writer with the Irish Times and a producer of the Women's Podcast. Um, I'm not an old pro, clearly, because I went a bit over, so apologies for that. Uh, last September, my world-travelling brother Siddhartha, or Brian as my mother and father named him, was over on his annual Dublin stopover. Some of these visits have been less successful than others. I love him dearly, but as in most sibling relationships, there can be moments of conflict. That September, the September of my coming out about my abortion in this newspaper, we seem to have found our brotherly, sisterly groove. In the weeks before the extract from my book, Public Displays of Emotion Containing My Abortion Story, were due to appear, I was often sick with nerves. Sometimes I lay awake, wondering what the reaction would be and what kind of abuse I might get for telling my story. An interview with Marion Finucane had been arranged for weeks and I was in bits, worrying that I would open my mouth to speak to her, only to find that I'd lost my voice. Also, I hadn't spoken to anyone in my family apart from my mother about the abortion, so I was apprehensive about what they would think, and I need not have been. I sent the 6,000-word introduction to the book to all of them, but I sent it to my brother Siddhartha, Brian, first. I wrote, if you wouldn't mind having a read of this introduction and letting me know what you think, I'd appreciate it. It's a bit controversial in parts. Within an hour, he had got back to me saying, nice intro, let's talk really soon. The relief! Other emails from brothers and sisters followed, all of them supportive, with one saying it's none of anyone's business. Their responses, which ranged from genuine nonchalance to out-and-out out cheerleading, were the first hint that perhaps the sky was not about to fall in. My brother arrived home a couple of weeks before the article appeared. I was glad to have him there. Sometimes we stayed up late in my kitchen drinking the cognac he'd brought from Russia, and I was able to tell him of my nerves and my dread around sharing the story. In the past, we've clashed because I've felt he's been insensitive or disregarding of people's feelings, but perhaps turning 50 earlier in the year had mellowed him. He was beautifully sensitive. He listened as I spoke about my worries. I'd say, I know I'm always putting myself out there, but this feels really different. I worry what people are going to think of me. And he'd say, hmm. And you just have to trust yourself and like trust your readers, which was great because all I needed was someone to listen. I didn't go into details and he didn't ask for them. He was just there for me. When he had a break in his work schedule, I brought him to my friend's house in County Kilkenny. She was having a party in her back garden. We were camping and both being wrecked, we left the party a bit early. I remember lying there beside him on the blow-up mattress, going through the dark spiral of pre-coming out anticipation again. What would people think? Would bad things happen? And again, I remembered him lying beside me, just listening, not saying any of the irritating or accidentally offensive things he would sometimes be prone to saying. I remember thanking him for, and I quote, holding the space for me. The nervous days wore on. Irish woman has abortion. It's hardly what anyone in this room might call breaking news. Thousands of us have done it. 10 to 12 have gone to England today to do it. When I started out in journalism in News 4 in Sandy Mount and later in the Sunday Tribune, I just want to say I didn't imagine I would actually end up putting my heart and soul on the page of a newspaper week after week. But somehow that is what happened. And as much as many journalists despise the I word, I think personal stories have power. The power to change a conversation, the power to open one up. Since I told my story, I've had the most amazing emails from women telling me about their own abortion experiences. I've been to dinner parties where male solicitors and entrepreneurs wanted to tell me, and not in hushed tones, about the times they went with women to England or the times they stayed behind. 
Women and girls in Ireland need abortion. And if I do nothing else in my professional career, being part of the movement to help this to happen, to repeal the misogynistic Eighth Amendment, it'll be something I'll be proud to tell my grandchildren about. But some of my colleagues knew about the article and many didn't. And one day in work, Irish Times columnist Fintan O'Toole, after reading my introduction, came over to my desk to talk about me, to talk about it. I have this green puff beside my desk and Fintan came and sat in my green puff. And I have to do a disclaimer because even though I work a few desks away from him, my very high professional regard for O'Toole can sometimes cause me to get uh, flustered in his presence. I went home elated. Maybe some other people have the same professional regard. Uh, But if I am a Fintan O'Toole fan, my brother Siddhartha slash Brian is in a whole other league of fandom. When I told him how chuffed I was about the mind-blowingly kind things Fintan had said to me, my brother began to look a bit strange as though he was sickening for something. Pink of cheek, I recounted the praise I'd received while holding with pride onto my book. As I spoke, my brother came over trying to grab it off me, saying, just let me have it for a second, will you? This was most odd. He was freaking me out. I stood grappling with him for a minute until in in exasperation, I told him, look, you don't need to be reading all about my abortion again. And that's when my brother Siddhartha slash Brian said, you had an abortion. (laughs) clearly hadn't been listening all those lovely times just nodding the shock on his face makes me laugh every time I think back on that moment it's one of the highlights of a really strange time um, it's another highlight like the one with my mother who was here this evening tweeting the day the story came out about how proud she was of me and of Tara Flynn for telling her stories So because, last line, (laughs) personal stories have power and I'll never forget or regret using mine. I'm Olivia O'Leary. I do a radio column for RTE. And every so often in journalism, you get a real sense of what Charlie Chaplin tried to portray in his film, Modern Times, the struggle of the individual against the mighty and deadening power of industry and of hierarchy. And I got that in a radio documentary that we did in 1972 on the Irish thalidomide experience when Irish parents of thalidomide sufferers started to campaign for compensation. And what we did, all we did perhaps, was to help establish that the Irish government had to take their share of the blame. Thalidomide, as you know, was supposed to relieve nausea in pregnancy. And in fact, what it did was that it produced abnormalities in the limbs of children subsequently born. The drug sold in Ireland, it was called Softenon here, was manufactured by Chemi Grunenthal in Germany and distributed here by Wheelahans. And on this story, RTE gave researcher Aileen O'Doherty and myself two whole precious months to travel through Germany and to trawl through the archives and to get documents here. And what we discovered was that thalidomide was withdrawn in Germany on November the 26th, 1961, at which stage the company in Germany said it issued notices to its Irish distributors and to the Irish government, which was the licensing authority. But at no stage in the next six months did the Irish Department of Health, who were the body responsible for the licensing and the allowing of the importation of the drug, nor the distributors, Wheelahan, issue any sort of public 
warning. Was there even any sense of urgency about withdrawing the drug? Well, my researcher, Aileen Doherty, who was a former nun, spent day after day after day sitting in the offices of Wheelahans, who were the distributors, asking for a copy of the withdrawal slip. And they would say, we can't find it, or so-and-so's not here, and Aileen would smile sweetly and say that she could wait. So days later, when they produced it, it was the usual withdrawal slip that was issued to pharmacies for batches of medicines which had gone out of date. There was absolutely no urgency, no sense of urgency at all. So there were people who took thalidomide preparations off the medicine chest shelves here at home, either from chemists who hadn't withdrawn it from their shelves or people who actually had it in their home medicine chests. In the UK, at least 20 children were born showing typical thalidomide impairments more than nine months after the drug was withdrawn there. And there were such cases here. Mrs. Margaret Brennan Halad of the Committee of Justice for Irish Thalidomide Children was one such. And Dr. John O'Connell, in his time Minister for Health, said that he was still able to buy Softanon over the counter in a chemist's shop down the country in 1964, two years after the Irish government said it had all been withdrawn. So after we discovered all of this, we asked for an interview with uh, Erskine Childers, who was the then Minister for Health. This was 1973. And it was very clear from his whole attitude that he was uncomfortable defending the way the crisis had been handled 12 years before. So when I asked him in the interview why a public warning had never been given, he said, and I quote from the Irish Times account of the interview, which was carried on the front page next day, that the then minister, that was the minister back then in 61, felt it was unlikely that many expectant mothers would have taken the drug and that he didn't want to alarm those who might have taken it during pregnancy. He said that the then minister had the choice of either terrifying mothers who might or mightn't have taken the drug or not terrify them when one or two mothers might indeed take the drug and bring into the world a deformed child. I was shocked, needless to say. He was embarrassed. But I also knew that we had the admission that we needed, that the government had taken a deliberate decision not to warn mothers. And the thalidomide parents at the time hopped on that admission the next day when they went to see Minister Childress. And Mrs Margaret Allad said that the minister was now doubly responsible. She said... He said on the radio that the Minister for Health at the time did not want to alarm people by making a statement about thalidomide in 1961. If he had made that statement, my child would not have been born deformed in October 1962. By the time the parents' deputation came out of his office, the Minister had promised to reconsider Irish government funding. As it happened, an election was called the following week and the new Labour Minister for Health, Brendan Corish, gave a capital sum to the thalidomide children, which was four times what the German government had offered them, and established a state payment linked to inflation to those people who had suffered from thalidomide. And even then, Corish had to fight the civil servants in his own department, the Secretary General of the Department of Health, kept on sending papers over to the Cabinet, which had actually reduced what the agreed sum to be paid to the thalidomide parents and children was. The payment, as we now know, has not been adequate to meet, meet the needs of thalidomide sufferers over the years. But it was a start and it was... Um, 
a recognition. And I was conscious of all the hierarchies we'd had to fight along the way, the industrial hierarchies, because the German government were so proud of their big pharmaceutical firm from Chemie Gunenthal, they didn't want to know about this story. The civil service uh, hierarchy, civil service didn't want to have the government admit that there was any culpability because then it was obvious that they would be regarded as having been at fault. But of, and the political hierarchy indeed, but of course there was another hierarchy. And it's just the last question I'll pose. Why were the state so reluctant to give a public warning about the dangers of thalidomide? And I have no doubt, though it wasn't said at the time, that it was because of the fear that women who worried about having a child with deformities might, just might, go to get an abortion. And that the shadow in the background there was the Catholic Church. I like to think that our program helped the brave parents in some way to achieve that payment. You need time and you need money to do such programs. We got both then and I wish we had more of both now. Hello everybody, my name is Neve Towie and I'm an online journalist here in the Irish Times in the newsroom. Just over two years ago, I left the halls of NUI Galway to begin my internship in a national Sunday newspaper in Dublin. I had never worked in a real newsroom before and journalism was still more of a concept to me than a practical reality. Every Tuesday we had a news conference and although I, let, I was let off easy for the first few weeks, once I had settled in, I was expected to pitch three stories just like everybody else did. I became accustomed to having ideas rejected and learned that I'd be doing well to get one of my own ideas published a week. With that in mind, I came in one Tuesday morning slightly ill-prepared and maybe a little bit hungover after a bank holiday weekend at home in Roscommon. I had one story idea which I thought would cover me, making it look like I'd at least made an effort. While I was out with girls from home on the Saturday night, one of them told me she had been to the local doctor looking for a prescription for the pill, but he had refused to give it to her. He was known to be a devout Catholic and didn't believe in contraception. She said he had been condescending and judgmental and she left feeling like she was promiscuous for asking. She told me of other girls we knew who had the same experience with him. With little more than her account to rely on, I figured the story would be too difficult to firm up and wouldn't materialise into print. So, lacking any other inspiration, I told the news editors my story and Murphy's Law, they loved it. <laughs> I was brought into the editor's office and he asked me to go undercover to the doctor in question and ask him to prescribe me the pill. They gave me a voice recorder which I would conceal in my handbag and a pen with a hidden camera in it. I had never seen them so excited about a story since I'd started there. Um, they reassured me that I didn't have to do it. It was totally my own decision. Over the next few nights, I found myself waking up in cold sweats at the prospect of it, wondering what was the right thing to do. I decided I wouldn't use the pen with the camera. That was a breach of privacy too far, I thought. But I would go down and give him his fair chance to prove me wrong. And that's what he did. Although he refused to prescribe me the pill, he, <clears throat> he explained himself in a level-headed and non-judgmental fashion. Doctors retain the right to conscientious objection and in such cases must give the patient alternative doctors available to them, which he did. I was relieved. 
After a week of little sleep and a preoccupied mind, I could finally wipe the cold sweat from my brow when they decided not to run the story. Hi, um, my name is Sinead Ryan. I'm a personal finance and consumer journalist and co-presenter of um, Ortiz, My Money and Me. One night towards the end of summer 1994, I was eight months pregnant, hot, unable to sleep, and poring over my mortgage statement at 3am. The numbers didn't make sense. It looked as if I'd been overcharged for years, and yet the bank must be right, right? Interest rates were already sky high due to the sterling currency crisis. We were in arrears, and the letters and phone calls were only going one way, mine unanswered. Later that morning, in utter frustration, I decided a sit-in at National Irish Bank was the only solution. After an hour, I was offered a cup of water. Another hour, and I was asked to leave. After another, the manager finally agreed to see me, lest I think that I would actually give birth in the branch in front of him. The numbers hadn't lied, because they never do. I left with a cheque and mumbled apology for the anomaly. It was a glitch. I returned to my job in an insurance company. Four years later, Charlie Bird and George Lee broke the scandal of allegations in NIB of tax evasion, offshore accounts and overcharging. An investigation ensued to explore systematic and deliberate interest loading on mortgages. In time, the bank admitted and expressed regret for its actions. In the Dáil, Michael Noonan called it a conspiracy to defraud. I felt stunned, outraged, and vindicated. Customers would be refunded. I already had been, of course, believing I was the only one, the anomaly. In 2004, I was trying to break into writing. I didn't feel like a writer. I I couldn't think of things to write about, and I was really waiting on inspiration for a great novel. In the meantime, I became a jobbing stringer on a local free sheet. And I wrote about district court cases and planning permissions while pitching the occasional feature to the Evening Herald. They were mediocre articles and I knew it. I was pretending really because I didn't know anything about anything at all. But the patient mentoring Frank Coughlin saw something else and allowed me the time to pin it down. Later that year, I had a visit from the Gardaí. They were investigating old reports in the NIB case, and my name had appeared on a file. I relived my story, and it was taken down in evidence. I wondered, could I write this? Could I do it justice? Was it more than just my story? I tentatively pitched it. In his terse, Corconian manner, Frank replied, 750 words by 5pm, make them good ones. I had no intention of becoming a financial journalist. How boring is that? (laughs) I wanted to travel and write about adventure or eat in nice restaurants and get paid to criticise them. (laughs) I wanted to write a thriller full of suspense and intrigue where victims were duped and the baddies skillfully revealed with shock and awe. And maybe someday I will do those things. But for the last decade, it turns out there has been enough intrigue, suspense, and too many duped victims to count right here in our banks. Thank you.
My name is Darv MacDonald. I'm the Group Business Editor uh, of Independent News and Media, until very recently the Legal Editor of the Irish Independent and a Sunday Independent columnist. And every so often I'm asked which of the many legal cases I covered over more than 10 years in this writing life that has got to me the most. And I try not to think about it in part because covering the courts as I used to do requires professional skills of objectivity and detachment. I also detest the cult of prurience as well as the galling hierarchies that can surround certain trials at the expense of lesser publicised ones, but not any lesser griefs. And I do understand it because it's human nature to be fascinated by what William Golding in The Lord of the Flies describes as the innate savagery of man. I've learned, I think, how to process what our friends in America call vicarious or secondary courtroom trauma. However, there are sights and sounds that you just can't erase, images and scenes that will not release you from their grip. Sounds like the anguished cries which I can pull up in my mind at any moment of the parents of two little girls, then aged six and nine, as the man who subjected their babies to a violent rape and kidnap ordeal received two life sentences for his crimes. The murder trial of architect Graham Dwyer was also in a deeply depraved class of its own. The forensic reconstruction of the final year of Elaine O'Hara's life was simply beyond words. It brought us into Dwyer's debased mind and Elaine's lonely heart. And it's the detail of Elaine's final journey that we were able to reconstruct through text messages from phones that had lain for, for more than a year at the bottom of a reservoir, from the cell site analysis showing her journey from um, a hospital bed where she was being treated to a lonely spot on the shore, the final message he sent to her in a text message, go to the shore and wait. I was also deeply affected by what became known as the life support case, when a three-judge divisional high court sat one Christmas Eve to determine the fate of a young, brain-dead mother in the early stages of pregnancy. And there are many images that haunt me about the case that my colleagues and I covered that Christmas in a cold and bleak courtroom in the four courts in December 2014. There was a quiet dignity of her father as he told of his distress at seeing his daughter's chest slowly rise and fall, knowing that she was dead. Or her two small children who were brought in to see their mother with an open wound in her head where fungus was growing and being told that the nurses were just looking after their mommy until the angels appeared. One medic testified that the young woman's brain was liquefying and pouring toxins into her bloodstream. Another broke down in that cold courtroom as he spoke of a little girl with painted nails who was nonetheless fully dead. But the image that haunts and angers me the most is a scene recounted by a consultant neurologist who treated the young woman at the hospital where she was pronounced dead. He sought legal advice on what to do as his clinically dead patient was pregnant. None was forthcoming. Like some obscene Paddy Irishman joke, the neurologist told us in the High Court that afternoon how he and two of his colleagues found themselves in a room trying to figure out Article 40.3.3 of the Irish Constitution. Did you hear the one about the three doctors in a room trying to figure out the Eighth Amendment? Back in the newsroom that Christmas Eve, my news editor, not unreasonably, it has to be said, asked me if it was necessary, Derville, to include certain details, the liquefying brain, the waiting angels, the painted nails. And I argued with a heavy and reluctant heart that it was, that it was necessary 
to have those details to illustrate how we have created a crippling climate of fear and uncertainty for our medical profession and the women in their care. I argued with tears in my eyes and the strength in my voice that you probably hear now that the public must know of the chilling impact of a failed political leadership by successive governments. That they must know, we always ask the question, how did it come to this? And I said they must know that it comes to this when we create a culture of vitriolic censorship around women's health care and autonomy. The Eighth Amendment, which I call the impossible article, doing what it does, trying to create due regard for the equal rights to life of mother and unborn in circumstances where rights collide, hierarchies prevail. It has cast a long, long pall over Irish social and healthcare policy. Our failure to confront the Eighth Amendment and to fully articulate the legal status of the unborn means we've no functioning laws governing not just abortion, including the entirely unworkable 2013 Protection of Life During Pregnancy Act. But we also, as a result of our failure to deal with this, have no laws for issues such as IVF, more than 6,000 babies born into a legal limbo, no laws governing surrogacy, no laws governing stem cell research, and other pressing ethical, legal and medical issues that are here and that are going to pertain into the future. I am the same age as X. And if there's one issue that I've written about extensively in my career, it has been the Eighth Amendment. And it angers me that Irish women are still subject to the cruel whims and crippling censorship of a well-intended but entirely unworkable constitutional provision. I often think of X. I'm in a different business now, covering business. But I often think of X. I think back to that Christmas to that young mother. I think of all the legal cases in Ireland and Europe regarding the eighth that I've covered. And I think of all the women, including some brave women here today, who are affected by the eighth. And we are all affected by it, no matter what courageous path we choose in the face of a crisis pregnancy. And I do try, but no matter how hard I try, I can't get them out of my mind. Hi, um, my name is Sarah Pollock, and I'm a reporter here at the Irish Times. The first time I met Marwan, we struggled to communicate. He spoke broken English and relied heavily on his eldest daughter for translations. I'd left Dublin early that autumn morning to drive to the Ballyhonest Direct Provision Centre in Mayo to speak to Marwan, his wife Rodina, and their three teenage daughters about their journey from Syria to Ireland. Four months previously, I'd begun writing New to the Parish, a weekly series for the Irish Times about people who had moved to Ireland in recent years. When I met Marwan and Rodina in October 2015, the family had already spent six months in Ireland. We crowded into a small living room in an apartment overlooking the main street in Ballyhonus, while Marwan described, as much as he could given his limited language skills, the death and destruction that they had left behind. He spoke of a friend who was blown up while crossing the street. His 18-year-old daughter talked about how the sisters stayed home from school as the bombings in Damascus intensified. Her friend in class died, she said, pointing at her younger sister. She just died. I mean, how? It was a mortar attack. Then you start to realise. Then you see the death. Rodina stood silently by the window as her husband and daughter spoke of the family's eventual decision to leave Syria. On a number of occasions, Marwan gestured for his wife to join him on the couch. But she remained still, 
her dark, her dark eyes intently following her daughter's words as silent tears fell down her face. After the article was published, I received a call from a woman called Jean. She explained she was from the Kilmacud Parish in South Dublin and that she wanted to contact Marwan and Rodina. We want to sponsor them, she said. The parish wants to find them a home in Dublin, pay their rent for the next two years, pay the girls' education costs and help the parents find work. At first I struggled to believe Jean's offer. In Ireland, we boast of our world-famous welcome, but when it really comes to helping those in need, people who may speak a different language or come from a different culture, we often fail to turn this rhetoric into reality. Even now, our Department of Justice is failing to resettle just 4,000 of these refugees living in squalor in European refugee camps. After some reflection and speaking to Jean about the details of the offer, I put her in touch with the family. The move to Dublin wasn't easy. It was a struggle to find a landlord who would rent a house to a Syrian family. Many sympathised with the family's situation, but were unwilling to rent them a house without the necessary paperwork and references. Acting on the advice of an Irish Times colleague, I wrote a second article about the family's search for a home. Within hours of the article appearing in the paper, offers were pouring in, and a couple of weeks later, they moved into a three-bedroomed home in Kilmacud, directly across the road from the girls' new school. Last month, I visited the family in their new home. We sat for hours around the kitchen table, feasting on an array of Syrian dishes, while the girls spoke animatedly of new friends in school. Marwan had started English lessons and spoke with greater ease. Still quiet, Rodina smiled throughout the meal, interrupting the conversation only to load up my plate with more food. Before I left that night, Rodina pulled me aside and took my hands in hers. Thank you for telling our story, she said, and thank you for being our friend. Well, after all that, my skittishness shames me. Um, I think we see a pattern developing in many of those stories. The Eighth Amendment, first-hand reportage, a deep personal attachment to the stories and the people in them. I think that's what makes women a little bit different in cases like this and why their involvement in journalism is so important at every level from the ground up. Uh, so that's why we all want to see women involved in senior positions. We need women editors. We need women to step forward, I think, in many cases and be determined to change the course of Irish history in whatever shape it takes. And that includes very much the way we report things. Um, so I'm delighted with you all. You were all fabulous. <laughs> what, a, what, a, what an array of talent and of generations, and of people who feel so deeply about things. Now for our weekly Her Story look at an Irish woman from the past whom you've probably never heard of, but who did extraordinary things. Our researcher Jennifer Ryan is here to tell us about journalist Doris Fleeson, who became the first woman to cover a US presidential campaign when she reported on the 1936 election of Franklin D. Roosevelt.
Doris Fleeson, known as the Tiger in White Gloves, was a formidable political reporter. She worked as a columnist in Washington, D.C. for nearly 40 years, beginning in 1933. Both politicians and her peers regarded her as one of the best in the business, and through five presidencies she probed the workings of political power in the United States. Fleeson was born in Kansas in 1901 to clothing store manager and Westmeath native William Fleeson and his wife Helen. She began her career at the Pittsburgh Sun newspaper before joining the New York Daily News in 1927, where, as she put it, she belonged to the Who the Hell Reads the Second Paragraph School of Journalism and was one of the first female writers to gain respect as a political columnist. In 1930, Fleeson married her Daily News colleague, John O'Donnell, with whom she had a daughter. Three years later, she moved to Washington to cover the presidency of Franklin D. Roosevelt. And in 1936, she became the first female journalist to cover a presidential election campaign. After a disagreement over his conservative politics, Fleeson divorced her first husband, John O'Donnell, in 1942. She then left the Daily News the following year to be a war correspondent. During World War II, she reported from France and Italy before returning to Washington to write a political column for the Boston Globe and the Washington Evening Star. Her column was syndicated across the US during the war and at its height in 1960 ran in more than 100 newspapers. She had a great rapport with the first ladies of the time, in particular Eleanor Roosevelt, who deeply admired her and was a guest at her wedding to her second husband, Dan A. Kimball. From Truman in 1945 to Johnston in 1967, Doris Fleeson scolded presidents and tried to hold the political elite to account. Politicians respected her and feared being Fleesonized. She won numerous press awards and was seen by many as the best political journalist of her time. Her column was syndicated across the US during the war and at its height in 1960, it ran in more than 100 newspapers. A lifelong political liberal, she despised McCarthyism, describing it as a flower of evil. Fleeson spoke out against racism and sponsored the admission of a black reporter to the National Press Guild. A feminist too, she supported young female journalists and set up the Women's National Press Club. In 1967, having penned 5,500 columns for the Daily News, Doris Fleeson retired. She died just three years later at the age of 69, two days after the death of her beloved husband, Dan. Thanks to her historian, Ruth Illingworth, for today's biography. To learn more about the Her Story movement and their plans to celebrate lost Irish heroines, please visit herstory.ie. That was Jennifer Ryan there on that intrepid Irish journalist, Doris Fleeson. Now, before Zrazi sing us out, I want to say thank you to all our participants We were delighted to have you in the Irish Times and very grateful to hear your wonderful stories. Thank you also to the Irish Times marketing and advertising team for all their help with the event. And many thanks to our sponsors, Rabo Direct, a crew of very savvy women. Thank you to our lovely attentive audience for applauding where required. (laughs) Here in the boardroom on the seventh floor, and thank you to our researcher, Jennifer Ryan, our producer, Roisin Ingle, that wonderful multitasker, and on sound, that very sound man, JJ Vernon. Remember, you can subscribe to us or download individual episodes of the podcast on iTunes, SoundCloud and Stitcher, and you can find us on Facebook and Twitter at IT Women's Podcast, the award-winning podcast, Roisin would like me to say.
That's it from me. I'm Cathy Sheridan, and I'll talk to you next time. Sometimes, amidst all the news that we hear every day, the inequality, the poverty, the horror, the bad news stories, the news can be stunningly good. Apartheid can end. The Berlin Wall can fall. And around about this time last year, it was May 2015, the Irish people (laughs) voted yes for marriage equality. And I'm saying all this to you now because this next song that we're going to do, it's a song called Heaven Is Here. And this song became part of the celebration, the National Day of Jubilation that many of us enjoyed that day on the streets in Dublin. It's a song called Heaven Is Here. Thank you. to think that heaven was a place up in the sky and if I was good or if I was lucky I would go there when I die up, up, up somewhere beyond the stars up behind me a voice I know and love saying you're looking in the wrong place darling there's only space and stars above
Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details.